Welcome to week three of hell. <laughs> We're in our third week of the series on hell. Uh, here's where we've been. We took your temperature, no pun intended, the first week just to figure out where you stood on the topic. That was our intro and a kind of an open discussion. Last week we began with what does the scripture say about hell. Tonight we're going to finish that up and offer a critique of some kind. But I want you to offer the critique. I'll give you some pointers on the critique. I'll give you some critiques. Will you think critically with me on others that aren't up on the screen? Um, in other words, if you want to put this in words, you can understand. Why don't you like the idea that people will burn in hell forever? That's the question that at the end, I'd like to get your feedback on, but as always, you can jump in any time as we go through this. Last week, we had a very good discussion because as we went through the different verses, we were able to hear from you. I mean, I don't really agree with that verse, or this is why I think there's some wiggle room in that verse, and please do that. We're continuing the verses. We covered most of them last week. On the back table, I have actually have a two-sided sheet of paper that has all the verses we're covering because I know there's a lot of them, and you might want to refer to one and say, hey, I think that this verse contradicts this other verse. So rather than having screens going back and forth, I just put them back there and they'll be back there throughout the series. Uh, so you can just pick one up and say, well, what about the verse in Matthew that says this? They're a little excerpted. I kind of cut some of them down to get to the point, but you get it. So if you want to use that as a resource, it's back there for you. So that's what we're doing tonight. Next week, we're going to cover universalism. Is Christ's sacrifice so all-encompassing that everyone will be saved? The week after that, Morgan is going to cover annihilationism and the idea that maybe people get snuffed out in hell, to put it you know, in a way that we understand easily. Like maybe it just doesn't last forever. Maybe hell is torment. Maybe it's horrible, but maybe it doesn't last forever. Maybe the, the images we get from Scripture actually might lead us to that conclusion. And then we'll put it all together with some actual application. I'd like to come out of this series not just with a lot of knowledge, but with some application at the end about what do we do with all these views that we've looked at. Okay. So just to bring you up to speed from last week, we looked at several depictions of hell in the Old Testament, the Gospels, and Paul's letters. And if you remember what I said, oh yeah, we have our little hot meter there on the side of the screen. Don't forget the hot meter. In the Old Testament, we said that the word hell doesn't actually appear. It's not as simple as we always make it out to be, that there's just some land of the dead, you know, like Sheol. Like we talked about that a little bit last week, that's more complicated, but the word hell isn't used. There doesn't seem to be an afterlife torment place of any kind that's really very overt. But towards the end uh, of the scriptures, especially prophecies in the book of Daniel, we also saw in Isaiah, and I'm saying the end like chronologically, we see more of this idea of judgment after death beginning to unfold. And of course, we also said that the interpretation by the rabbis began over time to interpret the concept of hell even before Jesus spoke about it. And we said that during that intertestamentary time, there was an increase of this belief already in bodily resurrection and some sort of judgment that referred back to these scriptures in the Old Testament and started to give them a little bit of that meaning. In the Gospels, we said that Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else. And Jesus referred to hell in parables, in, in his hyperbole, and uh, even just in direct teaching. So... Whatever the Old Testament says, we have a little bit of trouble getting away from the doctrine entirely because Jesus spent so much time talking about it. I'll review very briefly about that. And then in Paul's letters, we said the word hell doesn't appear. Paul seemed to speak more, you could say metaphorically. He just spoke more about death and destruction that comes to sinners, although the concept of judgment is not absent from Paul's letters. All right, And we saw an example of that from Thessalonians last week. Uh, so keep that in mind. All right, I'm not going through all the verses that we did last week. These are just some of them for you to remember. Uh, off of this page, our hot meter was already on two points, two places that hell is not only referred to, but referred to in a, in a, in a way where there's fire associated with it. All of these verses are on the sheet on the back table that you could grab uh, and follow along. But last week, Jeremy asked a very good question. He said, what is the Greek word that underlies hell. Like when we translate the word hell, is it Hades, that Greek word that some people think is an equivalent of Sheol? And I think I said that's an oversimplification, just equate those two. Is it Gehenna, which is another word? And I'll tell you that in all of the instances you see on this screen, so Matthew 5.22, 5.30, Matthew 18.8.9, Matthew 10.28, Matthew 23.15, 
22, 33, and Luke 12, 5, all of them, the word Gehenna is the word that this translation, which is the NIV, translates into hell. It's important because a lot of people just kind of out of common repetition say, well, in the New Testament, Jesus was really speaking about Hades. And Hades is the place that's translated as hell. And Hades is not really a place of torment. Hades is just kind of the realm of the dead. Well, Jesus is talking about Gehenna, which, as we said last week and kind of explained a little bit about, is a reference possibly more than likely to a physical place, but it came to represent the place where the wicked would be cast, and Jesus interprets it not as a physical place outside the city, like the trash heap where they were burning the trash. You can see from his concepts that he's really always talking about a judgment that occurs after death in many of these contexts. So by this point, when he's using these words, Gehenna has really come to represent an afterlife place of judgment. So he's describing what this place looks like when he says, you're in danger of the fire of hell. In other places, he just calls it hell. Tonight, we're going to look at some other descriptions that may not be so hot, by the way. They may be cooler in temperature. Okay, So we're getting to those. But that was last week's verses. Here's another verses from last week, also on that sheet that you could follow along, the parable of the rich man. Uh, in Mark 9, this is the point where we said that he quotes from Isaiah, specifically giving color to the verses in Isaiah, talking about hell being a place where the worms that eat do not die, fire is not quenched, everyone is salted with fire. So a very important interpretation there that also uses Gehenna. All right, so he's using the same word there. These are the verses we looked at also last week. The only thing I'll point out here is that, again, in James 3, 6 and 2 Peter 2, a word that is not Hades is used again. In James 3, 6, we have Gehenna. And in 2 Peter 2, it's Tartaros, which is a Hebraic word that also came to signify judgment in the afterlife. It was a word that was grabbed from apocalyptic literature uh, that referenced this place of torment in the future. It was a place where the realm of the dead was even above this place. This is like a deeper place than the realm of the dead, a place of real torment. So it's the only instance it appears in the scriptures in Second Peter. Why am I bringing all these up? Well, Jeremy asked, which is a very good thing to do because we read the word hell in English and it covers three or four different words that could be interpreted. So we should get our words accurate if we're going to be in this area. Ironically, the book that uses Hades the most is Revelation. And there's a distinction that we should look at from our verses from last week. There seems to be a distinction, if you look at Revelation 20.14, between death and Hades. So again, the people who just want to make Hades the realm of the dead, it's not quite so easy to do that, even from the book of Revelation, because he makes a distinction. All right, That death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. There's like slightly different concepts, it appears. I mean, again, I'm not here to interpret the book of Revelation, and there's a lot of ways to interpret this, but I'm just making a point that if you look at it, it seems like they're two different things. It's just that I don't want us to oversimplify, as I've heard many people do in arguments saying, well, it really just says Hades, and that's not really hell. Well, it's not really death either, and it's not even the word that Jesus uses. It's a different word. So John's revelation seems to be a little bit different in terms of the word choice. Okay? That's kind of where we left off. Now, if you look at our hot meter, we left off at like nine points. Nine times in the scripture references we've seen is there some sort of reference to fire or something being very, very hot. Um, what I want to do right now is move into verses that don't necessarily use the word hell, but have been interpreted to talk about the same thing. And in part, Monique asked the first week during kind of our introduction, like I've heard someone say to me, that being cast into the outer darkness or the weeping and gnashing of teeth only occurs one time. So I just want to point out some of these verses for us to see where Jesus might have been talking about the same concept of an afterlife judgment, where he doesn't actually use the word hell. Here's one, Matthew 3, verses 10 and 12. He says, the axe is already at the root of the trees. So picture that, what he's doing there, is he's creating a word picture where the axe is like right there. That's what he's saying. It's like ready to go. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he says again, referencing to God, His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor. 
gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All right, so in that verse couplet there, two references to fire that you see. The winnowing fork, by the way, if you want to know what that is, that's the way that they would separate wheat and chaff using kind of an instrument to kind of separate the heavier grain from the lighter grain so they could separate them out and just stick with the grain. Yes? Is this parabolic or apocalyptic? Well, I would say neither. <laughs> I mean, to be a real parable, he'd be telling a story, right? And here he's not in the middle of a story. He's actually using a metaphor where he's just kind of in straight teaching saying that the axe is already at the root of the tree. So he's giving like a picture, but he's not trying to tell a story in the thing. He's just saying this is how it's going to be. Like even the use of winnowing fork and separating wheat from chaff, he's making an allusion to what other rabbis would even recognize as ways of separating one thing from another thing, a good thing from a bad thing. But he's not telling a story about a farmer who went into a barn, like for example, like he did when he told the story of the wheat and the weeds growing side by side where he really wasn't a parable. Okay? But he is giving a warning. So I would consider this direct teaching using a metaphor that we're familiar with or at least his audience would have been familiar with. And the same parallel picks up in Luke 3.9 and 3.17. The same uh, text is paralleled there. So we give it a point on the fire meter. Yes, Jeremy. Yeah, I, just, you know, I guess my question would be if it's a teaching about hell or if it's a teaching about what it looks like to produce good fruit or whether it's you know, both, but my, I think, you know, it's certainly one thing to say this is a teaching or a warning, but you know that would be a debate about what the actual teaching is or what the actual warning is. You know, is it really the case that Jesus wants us to focus on the word fire so much that we develop a whole theology of hell because it's here, or is there a deeper point, which is look, you need to be doing something, and and you know. Yeah, sure, one consequence of that could be fire, but there are other consequences to not producing good fruit. I mean, forget, forget the eternal punch, you know, the eternal punishment part. I mean, there, there's real practical things that happen when you don't produce, when doesn't produce fruit here, so. I think your point is well taken in the fact that we don't really have an instance of Jesus sitting down and saying, now let me tell you about hell and how hot the fire is going to be. He doesn't have that kind of teaching. However, you can't escape from the fact that he references it quite a bit. And in quite a bit of those references, but not all, that's what we're looking at tonight, it seems like it's associated in some way with fire. And we're going to get to the critique of what that might mean or not mean. But the point I'm trying to also agree with you on is he is trying to make a greater point. Like when he's saying it's better to enter into the next life maimed, you know, then, you know, then with both hands and go into hell, right, or whatever it is. He's trying to make a point. He's trying to say, like, it's better for you to do this. And that really is what I'm encouraging you towards or commanding you towards, is that you not sin. But I don't think that he was just saying that as the ultimate turn or burn type of way of reaching people. I would fairly say after looking at a lot of these verses, he's just assumed it to be true to the point that he didn't need to stop and explain it. And what I'm talking about specifically is the concept of hell. I'm not even going to right now defend fire. I'm just saying that he just talked about hell like it's just there. And without any need to explain it or apologize for it. All right, here's another verse. This is Matthew 13, 39 to 41. This is in the parable where he's explaining the parable of the wheat and the weeds and he's explaining to his disciple, the enemy who sows them, being the weeds, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it be at the end of the age. So here he's actually interpreting the parable. He's not in it. He's interpreting. He's saying to his disciples, in my parable, the weeds represent certain people, and they're burned in the fire. So it will be at the end of the age. And that's common that Jesus would use so that out of a parable so that he could comment on his own parable. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun of the kingdom of their father 
Whoever has ears, let him hear. So importantly, while we had just finished a parable about the wheat and weeds, which you could read in context in Matthew 13, his commentary and his explanation of the parable doesn't leave the devices of the parable in question. And when he, I mean, he's already said the, the weeds are burned in the fire, but then he goes out of his way to say that these are the people that cause sin and do evil. The angels will throw them into the blazing furnace. So there is another point. Matthew 25. We looked at this verse again in depth, and we, we looked at all Matthew verses in depth. But now we're in the context of the separation of the sheep and the goats. And he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is one of those places where we can see not only the concept of fire, gives a point, but we can also see the point that he is balancing eternal life with eternal punishment. So it makes it difficult for people who want to follow Jesus' words and say, I cling to the promise of eternal life to discredit eternal punishment. They seem in this verse to be tied together using parallelism, which makes it, again, you can't decouple them without losing the other, at least on the basis of this verse. So it's something to put up that a traditionalist would say, you should look very carefully at this verse. Cormac. I just want to put out, it's important also again here to understand what eternal meant or what word was used for that. Yeah, and we're going to come back to that word, specifically eternal, when we get to annihilationism, because one of the arguments that's made there is, it's hard to understand what that word means, and I'll leave it right there, because I don't want to launch into the whole discussion about it. But that's where one of the legs of the stool of annihilationism sits, is eternal. And the roots of it, but also the concepts that go behind it. So it's kind of both. All right? We're in John 15, 6. When Jesus is talking about remaining in him and abiding in him, which is a beautiful passage, part of that passage he says, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Again, a lot of times Jesus uses these word pictures, but it doesn't make it a parable. He's saying that if you don't abide in me, there's nothing about John 15 that's a parable. He's talking about abide in me. I am the true vine. I, you are the branches. Like all those kinds of things. But it doesn't, of course we don't think we're literally branches. But he's also not telling a story. He's using that word picture to convey truth. And as part of that word picture, he's saying, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers if you don't remain in me, and you'll be thrown into the fire and burned. Matthew 8, 11 and 12. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The context here is he is basically saying to those who think they're going to inherit the kingdom, especially to those in the leadership of the Jews who believe that they're entitled as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to simply take their place at the feast, Jesus is warning them and saying, don't think that that actually gives you the right. You're going to find that many take their seats and you do not. But this is one of those instances where he talks about darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, which many, many people believe is another way of explaining the judgment that's to come. So there's one of those. I didn't have a separate meter for you on just those, but there's one. Here's another. Matthew 24, 51. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The context here is a parable that Jesus talks about, about one steward who basically goofs off and doesn't do what he's supposed to do. While his master away, he's getting drunk and he's abusing the men and maidservants that he's put in charge of. And then the master comes back and finds him doing this when he least expects him. And this is the outcome that he gives him. And again, he uses that familiar term, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We pick it up also in Matthew 25, 30. This time we're talking about the parable of the talents, where the master comes back and finds the servant has not been doing what he should be doing. The one that hid the money instead of actually invested it the way the master wanted. That's the context. And 
the end for that servant is, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, well, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes? Is it the only gospel? It's used elsewhere in the New Testament, but I think it might be the only gospel. However, in Luke 13, we have the weeping and gnashing of teeth without the darkness. So I'm, I'm trying to remember to answer your question. I believe it might be the only gospel that uses darkness. So Luke 13, 23, this is a interaction that goes on, not a parable. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Probably a good question. We could just stop right there and go, I want to know the answer to that. <laughs> That's like a great question. What's, what's he going to say next? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself are thrown out. Uh, it's that verse by itself is kind of shakes the foundation a little bit. There is a weeping and gnashing of teeth that is not coupled with darkness. Okay, we're almost done. In Jude, there is a description of this kind of judgment that takes place. Jude is a one-chapter book, or more accurately stated, one where we didn't add a chapter, we just delineated verses. Jude, verses 5 through 7, says this, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. There's one more. Up to 14. So his point is, it's actually a kind of an interesting point. If God didn't save the very people he saved from Egypt when they stopped believing, if God didn't save the angels who rebelled, he's basically making an implied, what makes you think he's going to save those who turn their back on God now? That's kind of the point he's subtly making with strong words elsewhere, but I don't want to miss that point because he's saying all those examples where God didn't hesitate to mete out the just punishment, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Yes? Um, I just think it's kind of interesting because you do have the eternal fire at the end, so it's like that sense of, yes, eternity, like an eternity of suffering or fire. But then above it, when it talks about the everlasting chains for judgment, then it says, on the great day. So are they like kept in chains until they're judged on that great day? Yeah, and it's one of the troubles with the word like you see everlasting chains. I mean, from our perspective, everlasting chains means we would read, well, they must be in chains forever. Otherwise, what is an everlasting chain, right? But I would presume that it's trying to say that these chains are not going to be broken until the day. But then it's followed by more punishment because the chains apparently only go until judgment day. That's right. And most people who take a traditional view of the events that occur after death, by the way, would say that after death, there is an intermediate state. We've studied those a long, long time ago in this group, but an intermediate state is basically you die and then you're in one of these two intermediate states, either in what some people would refer to as like paradise or something, what we see in Luke 16 in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, like in the bosom of Abraham, some place of comfort awaiting the great judgment. And then there's the other place, which some people would say, yes, that's Hades. Yes, that's some other realm of the dead, which is not comfortable, but is not hell, is not the final everlasting place. And a lot of these verses kind of hint at that. Like even the angels are kind of like in a place waiting for this punishment. Is it figurative? I don't know, because we'd say, like, well, if they're all chained, how are they running around the world wreaking havoc if they are? There's, you know, there's issues here that, that we'd have to discuss. But the answer to your question is, yes, until judgment. And most of the people who take this view of hell would say that immediately after death, you're kind of assigned to one of these two places. 
and you're there awaiting the final judgment because Revelation makes it very clear that everyone is then raised bodily together and judged together. And that's when the books of life are open to find out who's in the book of life and the devil and his angels are thrown into the lake of fire and then it says that the people who also followed them are also thrown in after them. Like That's all coming at the same time. So that's where people get this theology of an intermediate state. Okay, Jeremy. I just think it, it's interesting too that you can see an example of you know, a theological perspective just in, in this passage in how he interprets Sodom and Gomorrah especially in light of our series of hospitality where even, not just now with contemporary theologians, but even back during this time, you know, there were traditions that didn't interpret Sodom and Gomorrah as an issue with sexual perversion. It was a story about in people who were not hospitable. So what's interesting here is you have not just an example of Sodom and Gomorrah, but at a deeper level you have someone who has a view on it, or as at least using it in a way that perhaps others wouldn't have or which we might not use exclusively as that. So I mean, I just, there's even, there's more nuance here than just, um, you know, this example of eternal fire. There's uh, an, a bias or an assumption here about some of these other stories too. So. Yeah, you know, I tripped over that right as well when I, when I was reading that. And in the context, if you want to expand on what Jeremy is saying, in two places in scripture, and I believe Ezekiel 16 is one of them, and I don't remember the other one, there is a revelation of why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Like in the Old Testament accounts, we have that they were evil. And most of us assume, oh yeah, it's some sexual thing. In fact, Jude would be the basis of why the church has always kind of taught that. But in the Old Testament, the reason it's giving is because they were inhospitable and they were contemptuous to the poor, and they did not hold up the cause of the needy. It was basically God's justice that they were violating and specifically about widows and the poor. And I'm quoting that from memory, but if that's right, then it is strange. That's why I tripped over it, because I thought, I mean, there was kind of this mystery of why Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. And by the way, in our series on hospitality, when we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, there is that confrontation where they want to have sex with the angels, right? I mean, so it isn't like that, that story doesn't exist, but scripture at least says that this is what I have against you. And it's prophecy from the Lord speaking through, I think, like I said, Ezekiel. The, the real issue has always been why were they destroyed and why isn't everybody else just destroyed? Like what caused them to destroy it? And it just seemed to be such an interesting point that in the Old Testament tradition it was because they were not taking, they were not following God's justice. It's, it's clearly both. The pride, the gluttony, and they didn't take care of the poor. And then he cites in Ezekiel as well, which I didn't remember, the detestable sins. And I think you would read that right in there. So Jude is taking one and using that one and probably not using the one that's actually kind of a, I would say, a greater point. Now, while I got your attention on Jude, suddenly Jude, who we never read, who care less about, suddenly has become like a star for two minutes here. Um, notice this verse right here. So we're in Jude 5 and 7. He's talking about eternal fire. In just a few verses later, he's talking about people who are wicked. This is verse 12 and 13. These people are blemishes on your love feast from whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Wait a minute, I thought it was eternal fire. And now it's blackest darkness. That's why I said darkness does appear, but not in the Gospels. So blackest darkness is his description. And then in verse 22 and 23, he's going back again to the fire analogy. Be merciful to those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire. He's literally saying, like, if people doubt, like, go after them. Because by saving them from their doubt, you might be saving them from the fire. And that concludes all the verses I've got. We end with a guy who's flip-flopping between fire, blackest darkness, and fire. All right, let's launch into it. So up on the board for your consideration is a hell that is what some people would describe as conscious, eternal torment with a high likelihood of fire. All right? That's the traditional view. The traditional view is there is a hell. People will be assigned there. We're not going to talk about the criteria, but people will be assigned there. It is conscious. It does last forever. There is no end to it. It is not just like some distant place, but it's, the, it's conscious torment forever. Like I said, with a high likelihood of fire. 
What do you think of it? I want you to put your thoughts together because I'm going to show you a couple critiques. You can agree, disagree, and then I want yours. Here's some critiques of this view. The first one is that some say, yes, hell is eternal and conscious. They agree with that part, but fire is meant to be understood as a metaphor and not a description. What they're really trying to say is that, you know, we can't take for granted that just because Jesus used fire so often that it really includes fire. Here's some points that they would make. Jesus referring to darkness. Like, why? I mean, if it's on fire, it wouldn't be dark. So he does use darkness in a couple places, mostly in Matthew, maybe exclusively. So he does at least three instances refer to it in a different way. We just looked at Jude. We have eternal fire versus blackest darkness within one small snippet from Jude. So even there, like, is that inconsistent? Another person would ask, well, tell me about fire. Like, we have a description in Revelation and elsewhere that the lake of fire is created for the devil and his angels. But if the devil and his angels are not physical forms, they're spiritual beings, like, what good does fire do to spiritual beings anyway? Now, I've heard this argument, by the way, I want to take a quick detour here and say, I've heard actually people say, there's no way there could be a hell because we are going to be spirits in the next life and hell can't burn us. We don't have any physical bodies and we don't have any nerve endings. And that's actually totally not true, at least scripturally. Paul goes out of his way to make the case for bodily resurrection. So I'm not saying what it's going to be like. I'm just saying we will have a body. We're not some disembodied spirit in the next life. But this argument actually is just talking about the devil and the angels. They're spiritual beings. We don't know exactly much about them. But would fire actually hurt them? Maybe they have bodies. Maybe they are embodied. We don't know. Yes? The only reason, I don't agree with this critique entirely, but the only reason why I would tend to agree with it is that I think there's so much confusing metaphor about fire elsewhere in Scripture. I don't know how you can possibly tell metaphor from reality. Metaphor from literal, I guess. Okay. Well, I'll tell you that the people who believe in this as a metaphor say it's pretty clear he's talking about a punishment. That's their view. But I don't think it's fire. I think it's something that we can't conceive of. So, so Jesus would use the worst thing we could imagine. So that's what this view is. Now, of course, you may disagree with this view, but these people are saying, hey, I'm with you on the eternal conscious torment. I'm just not sold on the fire because as many times as he uses it, and even though we got our fire meter up to 15, that's still really not the point. The point is you have to understand that he's really trying hard to make the point, And he's really trying hard to, to get people to understand the gravity of the commandments he's giving. Um, but it's probably not fire. By the way, on this, the spiritual impact on, on demons and the devil, I'm not so sure they don't have physical bodies. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean we, we have images of angels even when they're described in visions and different things, not just when they take on the form of a man, but in other ways. So I don't know. This is asking a little bit too much of us to stake an argument on something that would be really just guesswork. Yes? Um, I'm curious as to the significance of even caring about whether it's fire or not, like the importance behind that. Because if these people are saying, yes, I agree, it's eternal torment, I'm just curious as to what's the significance that they want to say, oh, but it's not fire, because it seems ridiculous, or I don't understand, because the gravity to me is in the eternal torment. What does it matter what it is? So what is this view? What's the significance of this view to just take out the word fire? Somehow it makes it better? I don't understand. Yeah, I think what they're saying is we're with you, but don't stake the argument on fire, because it's not a necessary component of the argument. Like you're going too far by requiring that it be fire. See what they're saying? Like, they're saying, like, we're with you, but you're kind of going on a ledge that you don't even need to go out on, right? Because you're trying so hard to affirm the authority of Scripture that you're kind of taking on things that maybe you don't even need to take on because even Jesus refers to it a different way. So why are you so stuck on fire? And, of course, they're not saying, you know, you guys are all pyromaniacs and you must have your fire. They're just saying, like, we know you're trying to uphold the, uh, the integrity of the Scripture, and we agree with you that as horrible as this sounds, it we agree that it's eternal conscious torment, but maybe you're going a little further than you need to. Come back off the ledge a little bit. Like, you know, we're with you up until there. Anything else? Fire. By reading the Gospels, can you kind of discern what Jesus' view is 
Can I or can someone? You could at least discern that he believed in it. He taught about it. When you say it, what do you mean? Just a hell. Right, so like somebody asked me last week, was it, was it, somebody said, do you believe in a fiery hell? Like, said, like, forget all this dancing around, what do you think? You know, like, I believe that Jesus was talking about an actual place, hell. Whether it's fire or not, I don't know. So I would take Jesus at his word because I look at those enough to say he's not talking in parable here. He's actually making analogies. But if I found out it wasn't fire, it was some other horrible, horrible thing, I'm, okay. I'm not hanging my hat on the fact that it has to be on fire all the time. I'm just hanging my hat that I really do believe there is a hell, and I really do believe it's completely horrible, whatever it is. And that's what he's trying to communicate. All right, here's another critique. Death and destruction are more often used than these images we've been talking about for the fate of the wicked. Clearly in the Old Testament, that's kind of the, the paradigm. But we said that Paul uses this a lot more. So some people would say, like, maybe you're going a little far. Death and destruction starts to sound like annihilationism. A couple more critiques. We've looked at the exaggeration, hyperbole, the method of using, like, extremely puffed up words to make the point, or symbolism. And it's kind of the point that Jeremy was making, that people who used hyperbole in their teaching were more concerned about the impact on the hearer, like how you're going to change your behavior, how you're going to change your ways, how you're going to live a new life. Or more impacted on the hearer, like, do you understand how horrible this place is going to be that I'm describing? Than they were about actual description. Or even, I put up the word congruency. Like Jude uses the word fire, blackest darkness, and fire. Jesus taught about fire and darkness, and outer darkness, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, I don't know that they were completely concerned about congruency, and I think that's kind of a good point. They were more concerned with getting the message to you about what they were talking about, not about hell itself. So here's the argument about time, another critique. We don't really understand what eternity means. It may not really refer to a duration. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Here's a more scathing critique. There's a moral dilemma that's created when you proclaim God who eternally torments those who refuse his offer of salvation. I think that's one of the biggest cruxes for people who critique this view. So let me get this straight in plain English. If I don't accept God's offer of salvation, I'm going to burn forever, or I'm going to be tormented forever, and ever, without end? Like, doesn't that beg the question of, why would I want to believe in that God? Doesn't that beg the question of, like, why would I want that God's salvation? Like, what kind of God does that? And that's the dilemma that a lot of people feel in pressing this. Do you feel that? Doesn't that doubt the righteousness of God? Sure, but you could also say it doubts the mercy of God. Or some would actually say it doubts the love of God. But the people who take this view say his love is infinite, his mercy is infinite, his righteousness is infinite, his holiness is infinite, his justice is infinite. But at some point you go like, is there a conflict? Yes. I don't actually think that God's righteousness or God's holiness demands help. Um, I think that we have a difficult time grasping infinite love or infinite righteousness or infinite holiness. And we, we use those words and we use those terms and we have like, like a, a dim grasp on them. Um, but sometimes we try and make one more than the other. So as much as I would, and I don't want to make love more than righteousness. I don't want to make righteousness more than love, but the complexity comes in, well, do I, you know, Am I just holding up a view of hell because I need to defend some kind of view of God being so righteous that that God God can't do these other things? Like that's a problem. To, that's already that's a secondary problem. Like God can't handle sin, right? So you go to hell. Wait a minute. Like God can't do something, you know? So in this, I mean, that's really where the these bigger kind of philosophical questions come in. And that's why I come out on the other end. You don't need to help, you know. I, but I don't know about heaven either. So. Um, you just want to stay here? Well, I mean, I don't know what happens when we don't. So I'll let you know. You know, what happens. If Jeremy haunts us after his death, I guess that'll <laughs> be the only way. Point. Right? <laughs> you know. All right. So the other point is an issue of God's justice. Here's the other critique. So for a life of finite sin, you live a finite life. You have a sinful life. It's finite. You are infinitely and never-endingly tormented. 
Maybe I didn't know God. Maybe I didn't accept him. Maybe I didn't understand who he was. Like, I lived a finite life of a limited amount of time, and for that I'm going to pay forever without end? And we already mentioned this one, that the traditional view of hell is the best way to turn people away from Christianity. That's a critique that, by the way, to me, is not based on anything in the text. It's just based on the idea that, hey, this is bad marketing. This is bad PR. Okay? So, but it is an argument. It's an argument that's made. Like, hey, you want to turn people off to Christianity? Like, tell them about hell and explain it to them this way, and you'll just turn people off. Now, most of you in this room, I guess, agree with this statement. Most of you agree, like, yeah, this is a bad PR move to be talking about this. Greg, do you have a comment? The last critique there, if that's true, does that necessarily make it wrong? No. The fact that it'll turn people away has no impact on whether there's a hell or not. The fact that people don't like it, the fact that like 99% of the world vote against it has no impact on whether it's there or not. The argument is made all the time. And I think we feel it like it just turns people off. Like all those things may be true, but it still doesn't answer the question whether there's a hell or not. So I think that's a good point that you raise. I have one comment and one question. I think my comment as far as that last one's concerned about hell being the most effective way to turn people away from Christianity I don't necessarily know that that's true. I think people might even be willing, like people of all beliefs or whatever, might be willing to accept hell for like Satan and demons or really evil people that, you know, are separate from religion, um, that are just evil, you know, like Hitler, whatever. These people that you can like point out and just really like historically are seen as, as evil. I think what turns people away is our claim to exclusivity that if you don't believe in Christ, you go to hell because they see a lot of validity and other views and other religions and that's what's unfair and really good people that just don't know Jesus but do so much in the world even more than you know quote unquote Christians whatever I think that is kind of more the problem and then my second question was I heard it was last week or a couple weeks ago we were talking about this really cool idea sort of that like the Israel people back in the Old Testament weren't necessarily living out of fear from going to hell, but they were choosing to obey God because of this like view of his righteousness as the right thing to do. He should be feared, he should be revered. And I really liked that, like living this life to, to sort of make those choices because we love God and respect him and all of that. But I started thinking about it too, and if you think culturally, way back in the day, could it be that they respected God and wanted to, as a nation, revere God because of war and like famine, and it was like sort of a common belief that this country had their gods, but they were false, and we have our God, and if we follow our God, then we'll have prosperity while we're living on earth, and if we turn away from God, then we won't have prosperity, and sort of been doing it for like a heaven on earth kind of a situation. Yeah, I think we painted too rosy of a picture of people who follow God just for the pure glory of who he is. That, that should be the standard. Right. Second reason we should follow God for who he is is because he created us. And when he says do it this way, it's like following the manufacturer's instructions. He's the one that created us. He knows how we would best live together and in communion with him if we just followed the instructions of the creator. That being said, it's too rosy of a picture to say that Jews just followed God because of a love of God, which because we see the whole Old Testament is not that case at all. It clearly wasn't because of a fear of hell. However, it was a fear of if we fall away from God, we'll be exiled. Another nation will overtake us. Our crops will not, you know, like he withhold the rain. Like all sorts of things happened and the prophets brought all sorts of calamities and warned about all sorts of things that would happen. So it didn't work very well. But yeah, a little too rosy of a picture to say that, you know, that in the Old Testament, they just loved God so much that it didn't matter if there was any penalty. They were just going to do the right thing. I don't think that's the case. Jill. There are two kind of overarching thoughts I have about all of this that make me really sad. And they're kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum. So, and I think we've covered both of them tonight. So the first one is um, all of the verses that depict surprise. People who are surprised at the end, like, wait a second, I thought I was covered. What's going on here? Um, and at the opposite, opposite end of the spectrum, you seem to have, you seem to have this thought that it's also sad to spend your life kind of wondering if you can, God is going to nickel and dime you on all of your sins, and oh gosh, I hope I'm covered because I don't want to be surprised. And meanwhile, I think you just miss out on the whole point. So I think there has to be some kind of happy medium in there where you're not just like, hold it, I had it wrong the whole time, and you're also not just so self-focused and afraid of this that you're missing out on loving others and loving Christ, which is the purpose of why we're here. 
I agree with that, but I'll add that even if we miss the emphasis, if we emphasize too much one or the other, that's almost like this last comment where it doesn't actually affect whether there is a hell or not, which is kind of the inquiry or under. So you're right that a person could err on either side. And that's why it would command a totally different series to discuss about things like eternal security of salvation. Um, what is salvation? What are the verses about assurance? And why are there verses that are always warning? Like, why are they held in tension? And it is a tension. You know, and I think it was meant to be questions you ask every day as opposed to things that you are done with and dispense with. But all those things aside, whether you live between the two poles or not, I think it still leaves open that question of like, okay, but somebody's going according to this view. Yes, Ben. Um, yeah, I guess maybe this is more of a critique against the way we present the gospel, but one of the kind of personal struggles I have is it seems like we present salvation as like something that's just given by grace. And looking through these verses, it seems like the torment is given because of stuff we do or don't do. And I think part of my struggle is I can see both, like accepting grace, but then being punished, like for not doing something or doing something, you know, sinning. And I feel like they're, they're kind of like, you know, I realize we've talked about like salvation, including doing good things, but I almost feel like there's kind of polar opposites, these two. The answer I would give to you is, without launching into a whole theology of salvation, it seems that even in the verses about hell, when you get to Revelation, and even, I think, very fairly in Jesus' descriptions, describe people that deserve hell. I would think it's not a leap for us to think that everyone deserves hell. The way it's described, for example, in the book of Revelation, in one of those non-monster scenes where it's actually pretty clear, there's not a lot of interpretation need to be going. It says that books are going to be opened. And anyone's name who's found in the book of life basically is saved. The book of life represents that your life has been purchased by Christ through his action. right? So it is consistent with the idea of grace. But the opposite is, for those people who aren't found in the book of life, now we're going to start going through your deeds. It's almost to say that if there wasn't a book of life and there wasn't Christ and there wasn't a sacrifice and you weren't in that book of life, everybody is just going to go on the basis of deeds. And everyone deserves hell on those bases. So in a way, it's almost like saying that the, the concept of God's intervention shoots right into the middle of everyone deserving hell and gives life to those whose name is found in the book of life, which is synonymous with those, and I don't want to simplify it too much, those whom God saves, however you're going to interpret that. And that, I think, is consistent with what you're struggling with, but it's the way it seems to be described and the way we understand concepts of salvation. But that, I don't think, is inconsistent. It almost sounds like, without that grace, we would go on deeds, and that's exactly what consigns you to that place. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to do universalism and annihilationism which provide alternatives. They, for many, 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 many years, have been the minority views. Uh, universalism being a substantial minority, meaning that Christ's sacrifice being all-encompassing saves everyone. Annihilationism being also a minority view, I would say. But we're going to cover them, and we're going to show the case for them, because they're gaining popularity. People don't like the idea of hell. So they're looking for ways, maybe from Scripture, to argue other cases other things that we would be able to do. Cormac, do you have a comment? When you say that people don't like the idea of hell and so looking for other ways, it makes it seem as though they're doing it in spite of what scripture says and not because of what scripture says. Yeah, I actually think that in a way. Well, I'll let this, the evidence speak for itself. I don't want to say that that's my conclusion because I'm actually kind of open to going through those more. But the motivation in a lot of ways has been that idea of I don't really see God this way. Even by their own admission, as you read books written by people who are take these views, they always start with, I was always troubled when I heard this about God. So it's a theologically motivated search that sends them out. Like, I can't believe this about God, or I have a belief about God that is different than what I'm hearing. And now I'm going to go search for a different answer. So I'm not saying that they couldn't have gotten there anyway, but <laughs> I'm not reading that into it. I'm reading that from their writing. 
And again, I think the reason they're gaining converts, if not the people who initially formulated these, which, by the way, they're not new. These arguments have been around for a long time. So these aren't like somebody just came up with it. Um, the reason they're gaining in popularity is because more and more people are troubled by this doctrine. And for a long time, they kept silent. People in this room are troubled by it, and they're silent. Some people are more vocal about it. But it is an issue that where people are saying, yeah, tell me that that resonates with me more. I think you could also say that it's perhaps why it's getting popular is because like, we're moving. I mean, we're in an information age, and people are, information is widely available more so than it was before. And because of that, it's getting popular because people are just reading about it. OK. Let me close it like this. I said last week that there was a quote I read that kind of jumped out at me because I didn't quite agree with it. And it was saying that maybe in our efforts to apologize for hell, we're actually going to end up inevitably sending more people there. The reason I didn't want to agree with it is I don't want that to be true. And I'm not even saying it is true, but it does merit our consideration. That's the reason we're doing this series. If our own views about it differ, that's an indication that people who don't even care about Christ, this matters to them. And if you think that topics like this don't matter to people considering Christianity, I don't think you've had a conversation with somebody who's considering Christ in the last five years. It's probably been the last 40 years, but if you really talk to somebody who doesn't know Christ, and you think that this is just a bunch of highfalutin stuff that doesn't matter, you really haven't been out there talking to people who don't know Christ. It matters to the life of those other people who are considering the claims of Christ and just writing them off. So that's why I keep coming back at these topics. But there are people out there who are not going to find the narrow door because we don't care sometimes. So let's care more. And let's ask God to help us do that. Let's pray. Lord God, giver of life, we're thankful for all that you have given us in the form of scripture, in the form of our minds, in the form of our hearts and our souls. And Lord, in the form of your revelation, however it comes, even spirit as you speak in this room, even as we wrestle and are tempted to just put it all away and just shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know. So Lord, once again, you take us to the edge of our knowledge and our reason and our ability to comprehend you time after time in this group. But Lord, keep us from shrugging. Keep us interested long enough. Keep us mindful of the fact that there are people who have completely written off so many things about you because of words that have been carelessly spoken by people in the church. Help us to be better ambassadors for you, Lord. Help us to have a better answer. And help us, Lord, to use this series so that when we run into that person, we'll have an answer for the hope that we have. Pray this in your name. Amen.